Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health by providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources. Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. For the past two decades, TA Sciences has been dedicated to exclusively creating research-based, clinically tested wellness products that help address telomere shortening through the science of telomerase activation. As you know, anti-aging has been a huge focus of my research, and I am thrilled to have TA Sciences as a sponsor of New Frontiers. Learn about their products, their research, their outlook on anti-aging at tasciences.com. Com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am just honored, thrilled, excited to be talking to my dear mentor and friend, Dr. Jeff Bland. You know him, but I do want to read his bio because it's sort of, it's his new, it's his new career. And actually, Jeff, I think you articulate it so lovely. I, I look forward to reading it. So he's the founder of Big Bold Health, uh, a company that you're hopefully familiar with now. Uh, it's on a mission to transform the way people think about one of nature's greatest innovations, the immune system. Through Big Bold Health, Jeff is advocating for the power of immunorejuvenation to enhance immunity at the global level level, which is, I'm going to say it again, to enhance immunity at the global level. And we'll talk about what that vision is, um, often through rediscovery of ancient food crops and superfoods. And of course, Big Bold Health will walk you through what he's thinking there. To get to these ancient food crops and superfoods, Jeff is building a network of small farms and suppliers throughout the U.S. that take a clear stance on regenerative agriculture, environmental stewardship, and planetary health. It's just a powerful and essential combination at this point in our world. Jeff's career in health spans over 40 years. He's a nutritional biochemist by training. He was in academia as a university professor for many years. And then he spent 30 years in the natural products industry working alongside other pioneers. A lifelong educator, Jeff has traveled the world many times over in his role as the father of functional medicine. In 1991, he and his wife, Susan, founded the Institute for Functional Medicine. And in 2012, Jeff founded Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, uh, which is an annual conference that I don't miss, uh, among other things. 
Jeff is the author of The Disease Delusion, Conquering the Cause of Chronic Illness for a Healthier, Longer, and Happier Life, as well as countless additional books and research papers. Dr. Bland, welcome once again to New Frontiers. Well, Dr. Fitzgerald, thank you. And, and any uh, opportunity, excuse that I have a, a moment to capture time with you is a special privilege. So thank you. Thank you. So you and I have been talking a lot about aging. It's just a really interesting kind of culmination of careers for us that we're both putting our attention on this. Uh, and of course, you have said long, I think you really planted it in the minds of many of us that genes are not our destiny. But you know, I want to ask you about aging and genetics. Uh, you know, we know we see blue zoners, they live long and, and they live well and, and healthy and many generations out. Uh, you know, we see, I was thinking of the, of the um, growth hormone deficient folks too in, in Ecuador, there's a clear genetic component there. Certainly scientists around the world are looking for that, that, that age associated gene that they can perhaps CRISPRize like Clotho comes to mind or the ELOVE2 gene. Anyway, so what's the deal with aging and genetics? Is it something that we need to think about or can we put it down? Well, no, I think we all have to think genetics because of the nature that we recognize that Mindel wasn't totally wrong. <laughs> you know, the, these crossover <laughs> that we call dominant and recessive are real. Uh, and these concepts of monogenetic uh, diseases are real, uh, where you get one gene that is mutated or changed and it causes a significant change in metabolism that is tracked with an infant disease like Tay-Sachs, Wilson's, Gauss-Sears, Fabre's, uh, you know, various kinds of hemolytic anemias. So I, I think genes are, are real. So uh, they're not to be dismissed. But I, I think for me, uh, where I made the transition in my thinking about genes, um, because I was a student like all of us are in my health science training on Mendelian laws of genetics, this hardwired deterministic model, I had this aha experience uh, probably in the early 70s at a meeting I was attending in which um, at that point, a very well-known uh, investigator uh, woman uh, at uh, Boston, um, at Harvard, actually at Mass General Hospital, was giving a presentation uh, on first-generation Japanese immigrants. Uh, this was actually in women as part of a women health study. And she went through the pedigrees of these women, meaning their family histories, their genealogy. And when I looked at the chart that she was showing, I saw that these, uh, these family trees, that the, the women in those families historically had lived out to their 90s. Um, yet the generation that she was speaking to, which had migrated or immigrated to the United States, uh, these women were sick and had died in their 70s. And you know, you would say, well, hold up, there's like generations of genes here that all have 90-year-old life spans. And this particular generation that is in a different environment moving to the United States has, presumably they didn't change their genes when they got off the airplane or whatever. Um, now they're living on average to their 70s. So what's going on there? And so that actually started me down the road uh, as, a, as a professor and trying to ask the question, what are the variables that might influence this, this process that converts our genes, which are Mendelian, into the expression, which becomes our phenotype? Yeah. And that, to me, is where the, 
the story has evolved by so many different investigators involved in this field of uh, molecular gerontology over the years to where we now probably would say that certainly 25%, maybe 30% of our life expectancy is tightly controlled by our genes. And some of those genes can be obviously very dramatic in their control uh, of our aging process. If you, if you look at some of them, the mutations of the DAF gene that, that lead to people whose lives are only 20 years or less in duration. But for most of us, uh, the genes probably constitute only something like 25 or 30% of the determination of our life experience, life expectancy. And so that gives like 30, 25 to 30% of things that are variable, which is a big playing uh, ground for us to be involved in. And, and that's what you, know, you and your work and certainly my focus has been on, on these, these years. Let me just ask you about, that's great. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's pretty neat that you were thinking about this back in 1970, but it sounds like it was a really powerful example and a very clear example for you. You know, something else that you've talked about is the BRCA mutation and the fact that um, I'm assuming they, you know, they discovered BRCA1 and 2, and then they did a retrospective analysis in, in, in the blood of women in, I think, the 40s and the 50s, and saw that, in fact, the incidence of cancer in those women was much, much lower. I think now it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 80%. Maybe back then it was, what, 30, maybe 20%, you know, not significantly lower. And so another clear environmental contributor. But I want to say to you, I, you know, I, I've thought about that quite a bit and it's, and it's heartening because it suggests let's get in there and get busy from the get-go, but still 80% of women with the BRCA mutation are going to wind up with cancer, you know, at some point in their lives. So, so both pieces are true. And so therefore a lot of women end up going through, you know, prophylactic surgeries to reduce that risk. So yeah, I mean, the environmental influence isn't just maybe I'm going to choose, you know, a salad today. No, I, I think that that's a really good example um, because it, it speaks to both the sides of the equation, as you've described. Um, and when I read that paper in Science Magazine uh, talking about the difference in expression in the phenotype of breast and ovarian cancer in women with BRCA1 and 2 type of mutations, the difference between women bef born before 1965 versus after 1965. Um, the first thing that caught my attention, obviously, was, well, with that same mutation of that gene, you know, what were the lifestyles of the women post-65? How did they differ? Yeah. Or their environments differ from those pre-65? Um, but as you stated, um, we do live in the real world. So if we're yeah. a woman, um, that has a double allele hit with the BRCA mutation. And we know that we could probably do everything we would like, but we, we're not sure because we don't have a specific marker that we can say, oh, my lifestyle is definitely going to protect me because I'm, I'm carrying this gene. I, I, I don't know if I'm on the right side of the curve or not because I can't yeah. quantify that. Yeah. Then it gets into, as, as I've seen a number of women over the years, even women in our field who have made a decision based upon statistics which by the way, I think is a rational decision that they're going to have prophylactic um, breast surgery and uh, actually breast removal. And so that is still the real sense of where we lie today until we get a quantifiable marker saying, 
if you have that gene uh, mutation and you are willing to undergo lifestyle therapy, that you have a marker that says you're going to get the reward and you're not going to end up with a surprise with a mammogram somewhere that you've got a cancer. And I think those technologies are starting to be developed, but we don't have them with a surety today. So uh, we're in the in the never the world, right? We're in between the two worlds yeah. right now with regard to decision making. It's an extraordinary time. So it's uncomfortable, you know, for those of us in 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 clinical practice managing patients with the BRCA mutation and needing to make these decisions. It's hard, and and we're all guiding our patients to live, you know, as cleanly as possible. Um, but it's also exciting because I absolutely agree with you that we. We're, we're within earshot of those tools. They're not pie in the sky anymore. Yeah, and, and I, you know, there's a very contemporary application of this, and I know I'm gonna tread here in a little bit of a controversial area, so I'll, I'll touch on it only lightly. But there are a lot of people that are making decisions, obviously, whether uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus is of major concern to them based upon they, their perception of their immune health. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, some people are saying, uh, I do everything I can to make my immune health good and my immune resiliency high. So therefore I'm defended against the SARS-CoV-2 because um, my immune system has never let me down. I'm, I'm exaggerating the story just to make, to make the point. Uh, and so they have elected uh, by that reasoning to say, I, I don't need to be vaccinated because I don't want to run the risk of whatever it might be the untoward potential, no matter what it is for a vaccination, I'm gonna bank on my natural immunity as being sufficient. Then there are other individuals that would say, given the same set of decision-making um, challenges, they would say, well, you know, I really don't know exactly what my immune potential is. I'm doing everything I can, but it's, it's a little bit uncertain to me. And what I do know is that this virus has a high pathogenicity and infectivity. And I have seen some adverse sequelae of individuals who have not been vaccinated who thought they were doing a good job in protecting their health. And so I'm going to maximize all of my uh, chits on the table by vaccination, but I'm still going to do all these good things. So I'm going to, I'm going to decide to be vaccinated. Okay. And until we knew exactly, quite honestly, yes. how the immune system is working um, at a functional level in an individual, yes. so that we can say in that individual, by the way, you've got all the right kind of uh, natural killer cells and the right kind of helper cells and the right kind yes. of neutralizing antibodies. So don't worry, just go ahead. Until we can say that with some precision, then it's a very much a decision of choice that has some uncertainty associated yes. with it. Yes, that's a, yes, that's a, a good and uh, important example. I just, so I've got a handful of questions here. I wanna say um, a sort of, this is, I, I just I want to point out uh, just to give an example of genes not being our destiny because actually I wrote about it in the book but it's um it was an extraordinary case to me and I had the opportunity to encounter genetic conditions and address them in the laboratory because we were looking at you know thousands and thousands of test reports and so the you know the most unique cases I would get to consult with the physician and 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 and, and assist them in in treat in treatment you know we were looking at you know organic acids and fatty acids and amino acids all their essential and conditionally essential nutrients so we could draw we could design 
with pinpoint precision what we thought was the best intervention. We were looking at the microbiome as well. And there was a patient who was in the care of a physician that I consulted with really for years. And he, he would get this full panel of tests and he had a collagen defect, um, excellent collagen defect that gave him a life expectancy of about five years old. And uh, he, so he was on a feed tube, he was wheelchair bound. It was pr a profound, profound genetic defect. And um, this, so his feed tube, his, his, his nutrition would be designed based on these laboratory data. And so we would be able to give him exactly what he needed, you know, the, in the quantity he needed, he would just take it because it was in this, in, in, in his um, feed tube. And he, the last I was in touch with him, he was graduating high school. Wow. Isn't that <laughs> exciting? No kidding. Yeah. yeah that's the, yeah. that is, those are the proof of the pudding uh, stories that, you know, I think that um, there are, there are some papers that have appeared even in very high tier journals, like the New England Journal of Medicine saying that conditions that we considered uh, to be irreversible genetic defect conditions that affect infants adversely can be modifiable because they exist in different genetic variant forms in terms of their severity. And, um, you know, one that's very well known is phenylketonuria, PKU, which, you know, we yes. now uh, test for in, in uh, neonates with looking at their urine to see if it uh, has this amino acid uh, phenylalanine that hasn't been metabolized. And that, and that particular uh, condition is associated with early stage neurological deficits and, and ultimately a short life expectancy. But it was found, and this is probably the first uh, example of this, uh, this description of how nutrition can influence a genetic metabolism disease, that if you put these infants on a, a phenylalanine restricted diet, that they could uh, go into adolescence with minimum uh, adverse impact on their developing nervous system. And they would kind of I don't want to say grow out of it, but they would be much more tolerant to diet variety as they got over their infancy and young um, in their adolescence. And so these people started living into adulthood now versus previously where they would never make it to adulthood. So uh, that concept of a PKU-based medical nutrition program gave rise to the designation of medical foods. That was the first example of a medical food. Well, it turns out that... Um, in further study of that, um, and I, I know I know you know this, so I apologize. It sounds like I'm lecturing you. I'm not. I'm just kind of <laughs> acknowledging a learning curve here. That yeah. uh, that enzyme that converts in our body phenylalanine to its downstream metabolite, which is tyrosine, another amino acid, which is called phenylalanine hydroxylase, has a specific nutrient cofactor, like so many enzymes do. In fact, the majority of them do have different nutrient cofactors. It could be magnesium as a mineral, or zinc, or it could be a, a vitamin-derived material. In this case, the cofactor is um, tetrahydrobiopterin. Uh, yeah, tetrahydrobiopterin, which is a folic acid derived or related um, mm -hmm. biochemical. And so the, someone asked the question, um, or many people asked the question could you uh, administer that cofactor then orally at high doses, tetrahydrobiopterin? to push that enzyme that is kind of genetically sluggish so, so that it worked a little bit better and you could then reduce the risk to the phenylketonuric adverse neurological problems. And the answer was yes. They were able to demonstrate that in clinical trial that um, BH4, tetrahydrobacterin, when administered as a nutritional pharmacology approach could in fact um, ameliorate the symptoms of phenyl 
uh, allylene hydroxylate deficiency in, in phenylketonuria. Well, then to take the step farther, which I found fascinating, this is more recent, um, people started saying, well, why would a person be uh, tetrahydrin biopterin insufficient relative to their need uh, to compensate for this sluggish enzyme that was genetically uh, misshaped? And they eventually, for all sorts of reasons that I won't go into detail, went back to maybe think about the microbiome and thinking about the gut microbial metabolism and absorption and, and metabolism. And so people started saying, I wonder if we could get the same effect by doing gastrointestinal restoration of their microbiome. Could we use wow. pre and probiotics? Wow. And lo and behold, they started to show clinical benefit for restoration of the microbiome in phenylketonuric infants by getting them to more effectively metabolize uh, phenylalanine. And so the, you know, this story goes on is the more we look into the variables that influence our genetic um, expression into function, the more we see um, in some cases, what we used to think were uh, exor exorbitantly high doses of certain things are necessary, uh, like a B12 uh, resistant anemia sometimes require as much as a thousand times the RDI of B12 to unblock that blocked enzyme to get that person to have proper blood cells. So that's a genetic, not a death certificate, it's a genetic uniqueness certificate that requires specific approaches. So I've got a, just a lot of questions coming from that one, um, but I, I, I wanna ask you about single nucleotide polymorphisms. So, and, and just staying on this, and we're gonna get back to aging folks, I promise. <laughs> I'm going a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I know you wanna, you probably wanna hear this conversation if you're tuning in. A lot of us, myself included, really was excited. We were excited about the promise of looking at, you know, lots of SNP data and sort of and marrying it to the, you know, downstream metabolites and getting an idea of enzyme function. Kind of, you know, like Blindness Pauling and, and Bruce Ames and you, um, like we're just talking about. And and it is important. You've just we well we've given a handful of examples of why it's so essential. I spent quite a bit of time, you know, looking again at, you know, downstream metabolic activity and not and being really pretty disappointed. I can't, there's no shoe in here. You know, if I see somebody with a homozygous um, COMT mutation, which is going to be, is involved in, in metabolizing adrenaline, I don't see any major difference in adrenaline turnover in that individual or dopamine production and so forth. Like I don't on laboratory and we could talk about analytical reasons why that might be true or specimen or whatever, but we certainly, we all know people who've got more, even, you know, more famous genetic mutations like MTHFR. And I do think there's, you know, reason for us to be thinking about MTHFR, uh, but we don't necessarily see what we're expecting to see. And, and, you know, likewise with other enzymes in the, you know, in the methylation pathway and enzymes, you know, elsewhere. Some do seem to be like, certainly with the APOE, um, you know, there, there's, there, there's a bigger impact, but, you know, the, the promise of SNPs was, was far in our world. We were very excited about it. The delivery, I think, left us wanting a little bit. And I'm curious what your thinking is. Yeah, so I think all of this conversation, by the way, does relate to this big topic of aging. 
Because if we were to ask the question, is aging genetically pre-programmed so that it's an inevitable outcome if you just got a bad luck of the draw and you're going to die at 65, that's all there is to it. You might as well live your life three sheets of the wind because there's nothing you can do about it anyway. Or is there a lot of variability associated with the aging process that is associated with metabolic dysfunction that is associated with not treating your genes with what they need to be treated with? That's this everything that relates to that uh, the examination of that question ties into then how um, executable is an anti-aging strategy. Uh, and so that's how I see all this kind of fitting together yeah. in a broad uh, intellectual body of information. Now, specifically related to SNPs, um, I still believe that uh, you know when you when you do these uh, genome-wide association studies, so-called GWAS studies. Yes, that try to define how certain SNPs tie together with specific phenotypic outcomes, that those are good first level interrogations of how genes may, may play, may, and I want to emphasize, play a role in um, forming how we travel in our health patterns as we age. But the discouragement, um, and I'm again saying things that you know very well, the discouragement is that when you go from the broad statistical analysis of a group of people and look at their GWAS analysis yes. to an individual and ask how, uh, how does that interrogation of their strips relate to their specific disease? Can you take the group data and make it um, applicable to an individual? That translation is very poor. Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. I wrote my upcoming book, Younger You, Reduce Your Bio-Age and Live Longer, Better, because our research strongly suggests that we don't have to accept the inevitability of disease and unwellness as we age. And perhaps we don't have to accept aging as we age. Take that one in. And further, we achieve this biological age reversal without expensive and risky hormones, injections, or hacks, but with a simple, smartly designed diet and lifestyle program. When we saw our study participants reverse their bio-age by over three years as compared to our control group, it was clear to me, even as we move forward with more research, that you needed access to our program now. You can do this in two ways. Our 3YY digital program encompasses what we did in our study in an actionable, all-encompassing, doable structure, and my book, which covers our study, my story, the behind-the-scenes adventures, and a dive into the fascinating world of modifying genetic expression, plus loads of recipes and bioage assessments and an appendix extraordinaire. Both of these drop January 18, 2022. Please see youngeryouprogram.com for details on how to access both. Now let's get back to this month's episode. It, it, it seems like in the groups, yes, when you have lots of statistical data from which noise gets separated in the individual, no, its specificity is not so good. So then I ask, well, why, why might that be? And it, it might be because the SNPs and the regulation of their function is not just controlled by the SNP alone, the single nucleotide polymorphism, the single letter alphabet change in the genetic code. It may be that the the operational executive centers above the SNPs that regulate how they function as groups, because genes generally don't participate one at a time, they participate multiples at a time, maybe the upregulating control agents, which are the transcription factors, which are often found 
not in the regulatory, they're in, they regulate gene expression, but they're not in the coding portion of genes. Maybe there's right. all sorts of information in what we call the genes dark matter. Yes. Um, used to be called the- uh, Junk. Junk DNA, <laughs> yeah. Is, is where some of this real information resides that is executable if we're measuring the right thing. And it, it always reminds me of the story about the person that lost their keys, right? And they're looking under the street lamp and someone says, oh, it, did it fall here? And they said, no, it fell over there, but I can't see over there. Uh, you know, and so yeah. we often look for the things that we can see, but maybe it's the things outside is where the keys lie. And, and I think there's part of that that we're, we're learning now about epigenetic modulation, because some of the epigenomic yes. effects are not in the coding regions of genes. They're on the That's nucleosome, right. and they, they talk about how the DNA is compacted or made accessible. And so we're starting to see that we need to broaden our slit width to what we look at to mm -hmm. determine how the genes ultimately regulate our function. I, yes. And so, um, well, I have, a, I have a handful of thoughts. I can say many times at the lab when we would be, you know, swimming in uncertainty, Richard always says to embrace the uncertainty. You know, I'm, I'm grateful to be practicing what is largely safe medicine when we exist in such uncertainty, you yeah. know, because what you've just spelled out, as excited as I am about this omics revolution and as, you know, looking at the methylome and, and thousands of different, you know, methylation sites, DNA methylation sites, and what we can see and biological age and all of these things that we're galloping forward into doing, the reality is you're right. We've been looking under the street lamp and yet, and there is much, much, you know, so-called dark matter. And we do ultimately have to really marry all of these things together. However, we do have some wiggle room if we're practicing, you know, relatively, you know, safe, safe medicine, and we can form, you know, safe testable hypotheses, I think. Well, I think you, there you said something that I, I believe should be um, put in bold and with exclamation point. If you ask, how did the medicine that we're doing today, the, the, the pharmacology we use today, um, how did it evolve? And why has it stayed with us? <laughs> it stayed with us because the, the model started, started with antibiotics, right? In which it was able to exploit a difference between human cells and bacterial cells because bacterial cells have cell walls and we have cell membranes. So you could find a specific fungal metabolite from a soil bacterium um, or some organism in the soil that then would block the production of cell walls, but would not affect cell membranes. So that was a development yes. of a selective pharmacology of antibiotics. And it, it sounded marvelous because yeah. you could have one disease that responded to one antibiotic and you could have one drug to treat it. That was really cool. Yeah. But then over time, we, what we found out that, um, well, actually most of the chronic diseases we have are much more complex. They're not uh, so different uh, that we can say we're going to treat them with something and only kill cell wall organisms because they are multiple factorial related causative or caused uh, conditions. So now we start to say, okay, then what we will do is we'll develop a pharmacology around the endpoints of those conditions, whatever their symptoms are. So if it's high blood pressure, we're gonna find things that block blood pressure. If it's uh, high cholesterol, we'll find things that block cholesterol. If it's uh, pain, we'll find things that block the endpoints of the pain mechanisms, like yes. uh, COX-2 in inhibitor drugs. And, um, and that then uh, did produce symptom uh, success. And then the, the model was, okay, 
then the best drugs are going to be the ones that most tightly bind to these receptors that cause these downstream effects, these symptoms. And the better drug will be the one that has the highest activity, so it'll make the smallest pill, but it also has to be safe enough that it can pass through some kind of regulatory process so that you know, the people that are injured are going to be far less than the people that are hurt, uh, that are helped. And, and so now we will define our pharmacology based upon potency with a small, uh, less uh, important safety. And when I say less important, it's not that safety is unimportant, it's just that we'll tolerate some untoward effects for the strength of the activity. Now, when you do yeah. that, if that becomes your model, then what happens is you override a lot of the genetic um, uh, differences among people. The SNPs yeah. kind of get washed out because the drugs that we develop, these molecules are so hard hitting that they're agnostic to genetic uniquenesses. They just say, I don't care what SNP you have, I'm gonna block you anyway. And, and so it then reduces the genetic variability component significantly when you're using this kind of medical model, this kind of pharmacology. Now let's shift over to diet and lifestyle. And, and, and so what are these factors, the things that are in foods? We don't eat drugs. They don't have the same potency, fortunately, because if they did, we would be whipsawed around every time we had a meal and it would be pretty dangerous to, to be eating food if they were like drug-like. So they have softer touches on, our, on the receptors and they work by what's called pleiotrophic mechanisms across multiple centers and they tend to regress to the mean. And so because they're softer in their touch, they're more sensitive to different personalities of genes, SNPs. And so we see a greater diversity of response to diet-related bioactives than we would see to drugs. So people would say, well, doesn't that just complicate the situation? Because now you're going to get a lot more variability in a nutrition study than you'd get in a drug study because you've selected softer touch molecules to evaluate their outcomes. So you're going to have to have huge data sets of controlled studies in order to differentiate different cohorts that are responsive from those that are not. And that is why our nutrition studies have been so difficult to come by with the same security as our drug studies. But the good news, as you said on the other side, is at worst we do no harm because safety becomes a major component then. If, yeah. if, you, if safety becomes the primary objective, not the secondary objective, efficacy is below or safety, now we have changed the, the balance point from the drug model, which is efficacy for a safety second. So I think it's an interesting, depends on where you want to land on that curve. For chronic illnesses, personally, this is my personal philosophy, I don't want to use drugs that were designed for intensive care unit crisis medicine that have no ambiguity and they're, they're agnostic to any genetics. I want to use molecules that have soft touch that have adaptogenic possibilities to activate when necessary or to antagonize when necessary to find balance. Therefore, I will choose molecules of nature because that's the largest study that's ever been done called natural selection about the safety of molecules. And I will use those over the course of my lifetime rather than reserve the hard hitting drugs for the crisis of an intensive care unit. Yes. Yeah. Amen to that. Gosh. Yes. And I think we have enough information with all the you know, limitations of our nutrition studies, but we can certainly look from, again, from how we've evolved to 
kind of to be able to pinpoint certain groups of nutrients as likely beneficial for everybody. <laughs> There's not oh. that many Inuit, you know, eating just whale blubber. <laughs> I mean, there's, and so I think we can, there are many nutrients that are, that are appropriate. Um, all right. So I wanted to, I guess I'm going to just take a, a left shift here and um, I want to talk about DNA methylation. So, you know, we're talking about genes right now. I'll throw out one thought and then I want to, I want to, I have a handful of thoughts, so I'll just throw them out and then you can, you can grab whatever you want to. Um, we're talking about genetics. Now we can see that uh, is a gene on or not. And uh, we're able to look at DNA methylation patterns and see whether or not the promoter region is, is hypermethylated and therefore the gene is not available for transcription or is it hypomethylated and therefore it is, it can be. Um, there's interesting work on looking at BRCA. So if we circle back, I mean, first of all, the vast majority of cancers are not, breast cancer specifically talking about BRCA, are not associated with genetic, with a genetic variant. Um, they're unknown and they're not familial. So, but we can look at the BRCA gene itself and see that in fact, it can become hypermethylated and inhibited. Actually, there's a whole bunch of different uh, BRCA proteins that have the potential to be you know, have methylation patterns that turn them off and these are associated with cancer. So there will become a time actually, you know, the grail test, the gallery test is, is out now that looks at different methylation patterns in at least 50 cancers. Um, and I would imagine, I haven't studied the specifics of what they're looking at, but maybe they are looking at BRCA methylation patterns. Uh, so we, it, it looks likely that abnormal methylation patterns um, are contributing to cancers. I mean, I mean, we just know that to be true, and I'm sure that it's much, much more uh, impactful than than you know I've certainly realized. But so so one of the causes of breast cancer can be you've got a fully functioning BRCA mutation, but it's hypermethylated and inhibited. So that's one little piece that I want to put out, and and you know the Grail test, um, which was just purchased by Illumina, which is one of the main uh, research. Uh, laboratory companies making the DNA methylation arrays, um, you know, they'll be, they'll be offering it. Uh, what else? I also want to talk about DNA can, methylation. Can I ask, can I ask you yeah. a question on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the, that's a really interesting point. So I had, this is a mea culpa. Uh, I'm, I'm acknowledging a, a limitation of my own education until a few years ago when I had an aha experience. I never asked the question, uh, shame on me, uh, after speaking about BRCA mutations for some years, I never asked the question, well, what does the BRCA gene do? Yes, what, what, right. What is, it, what is its biological function as far as we know it? Yes. And when I finally learned that, question. and I should have learned it much earlier, but when I finally yeah. did learn it, I recognized that it's a member of the family of DNA repair, damage repair uh, genes. It's involved in protection of the integrity of our DNA after it's undergone injury. And it turns out that BRCA uh, is only one of a whole family of, of those genes that are involved with the, the processes that repair damaged DNA in our chromosomes and elsewhere, um, the, the DNA even in our uh, mitochondria. And therefore, uh, what happens is that if you have diminished DNA repair mechanisms in specific tissues that are undergoing insult from 
potential mutagenic events, that that then increases the likelihood you'll have a hit, a double hit on your chromosomes of those cells that could then trigger some kind of oncogenic transition problem that leads to cell replication and immortalization that we call, which is interesting, those cells don't age, right? Yeah. They become right. immortal, um, like HeLa cells. And so when I thought about that in greater detail about the lifestyle connection then to the transition of BRCA into breast or ovarian cancer, I thought what maybe is happening in, the, in those lifestyle changes is it, it had, or maybe environment in lifestyle changes, is that we have reduced the exposure to substances that cause DNA damage in those individuals that have been born before 1965, those women before 1965. So we're not actually changing the gene in, uh, of the BRCA itself, but we're changing the environment that bathes the gene, and we put less demand on DNA repair mechanisms by our lifestyle and environmental changes. Now, that, that's an interesting conceptual framework because when you now look at doing a genetic screen uh, as, a, as a woman at risk of breast or a man at risk of prostate cancer, it encompasses a whole family of genes that are associated with DNA repair. And now we recognize that the defects in DNA repair or the increasing damage to DNA are all associated with cancers of all sorts of different types. And it even goes back to the work that we've talked about with um, uh, Michael Fennick's work on, uh, on nutrients and their protection against DNA damage. And the, uh, the basophil test, the uh, multinuclei test that he developed a number of years ago, which he's published many papers, it's kind of a morphological evaluation of how DNA is being damaged at whole cell level. So huh. I think that we've got a lot to, to go back and re-explore as it relates to maybe the environment protects against certain gene types by less pressure on those genes that are required to defend us against a bad environment. I, I hope I'm making sense here. Um, so, so the BRCA mutation, excuse me, so the BRCA gene, so, so the, there are many actual tumor suppressor genes like far and wide whose primary role is to clean up DNA damage. Right. And, right. Um, and so you're suggesting that they're not, they're not able to do their job sufficiently, are they not, or are they not being adequately challenged? I guess I'm not, I need you to, yeah, to link I, I'm, that. I'm saying that those mutations, those SNPs, um, are such that that reduces the oh, repair sure. capacity, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. which makes you more susceptible to agents yes. that would damage DNA to their effects. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. So the mechanism of if you've got a BRCA mutation or, a, you know, if, or a BRCA hypermethylation or a tumor suppressor hypermethylation, one of the outcomes is increased opportunity of damage. That makes total yes. sense. And, and then if you take the next step, of course, which you helped me take the step. So I want to acknowledge that because in my early days, uh, this would be in the early 2000s, say 2003, four five, when I started doing uh, what I guess we now call webinars, Back then, there weren't webinars. They were whatever, educational events. And I would talk about the nature of um, uh, MTHFR and methylation. And I had a very naive conceptualization about MTHR and methylation. It was, I would be embarrassed to even say what I was saying at that point because it was very superficially naive. Um, 
because we recognize that, that methyl groups placed on genes is more than just the presence and or absence of activities of MTHR. There are, as you've so eloquently talked about, multiple ways that that's regulated. But with that said, what I, what I came to recognize and more recently is that the way that these methylating and demethylating enzymes are influenced is upstream by many different regulatory factors yeah. that then can be modulated through lifestyle nutrition. So yes. it, that's what I'm saying is we need to move up to the- Way the, up, way up. Uh, that's right, and, I'm and, with and you. We need to take the, the light that we've been looking at and make it a, a broader- Yes. Scope of light. <laughs> I got it. Well, let me tell you really interesting in, in the book, Younger You, that um, you know, that I wrote on our study and thinking about, you know, these tumor suppressor, these all important tumor suppressor genes whose, you know, main, one of their main roles is as DNA repair. I mean, they've got a bunch of different hats that they wear, these these proteins, but certainly DNA repair is big. And these tumor suppressor genes get hypermethylated and shut down in cancer routinely. Actually, they get hypermethylated and shut down in, in, in aging itself. And the, the, the chronic disease of aging, we, see, we just sort of see these collective, um, this, this, this molecular phenotype, as you, if, if you will, in the, in the aging journey. Um, but when you look at these tumor suppressor genes coming from a functional medicine lens, you're, it's just like, wow, like glutathione, glutathione peroxidase enzymes are tumor suppressor genes, and they're hypermethylated and inhibited in a number of cancers, but particularly geno, genitourinary cancers. So genes that we know are active and essential for detoxification also wear a tumor suppressor gene hat, like they, they clean this whole detoxification action sort of cleans us up and keeps us from cancer. And, you know, in the world of oncology research, they're thought of primarily as tumor suppressor genes and not, you know, oh, this is glutathione peroxidase enzyme. They don't sort of look at it through our lens quite as much. Isn't that interesting? I, I think you said it beautifully. And you know what we're starting to learn. Uh, we've been talking about this for some time, but we're starting to get to filling in the blanks a little bit of the pattern. Is that many of these processes that you're describing cut across many different ultimate diagnostic disease groups? So you can see the same thing in cardiovascular disease. You can see the same thing in autoimmune disease. You can see yes. see the same thing in in uh, neurodegenerative disease. These processes translate into the phenotype in different ways in different people but they, had, they share common mechanisms. This was the whole reason for the Institute for Functional Medicine being founded, because I started recognizing and reading the literature that the confluence of these, if you travel upstream, they all kind of uh, participate in kind of common pathways of altered function. And the, the regulatory centers, the executive centers that control these things are things that are modifiable in their expression patterns based upon the way we live our lives and the environment in which we're living. So, and, and it even ties into now we're starting to learn about social determinants of disease, that what we used to think was soft yes. science, it was like, oh, what's yes. that got to do with, with disease? Now we say, yes. no, these are, these are psychosocial uh, messages that are transduced by our nervous system and our immune system yes. into hardwired epigenetic effects that regulate yes. these functions. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, very powerful, very powerful. It's almost when we, when we look at it from this perspective, the only really the only light we have is to go upstream and to be thinking about diet and lifestyle. So when you look at your study and your book, the, the shifting seismic contribution that those 
two bodies of work that you participate in uh, result in us understanding is that the major pathways, the major networks, the major journeys that our body takes through processes that we call aging, that ultimately translate into age-related diseases that are generally put on death certificates, are processes, all of which are taking signals from our daily living, starting yes. conceptually on, yes. maybe even preconceptually. I, I won't even go there, but at least conceptually on so. for sure. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's extraordinary if you think about it and turning genes on and off in response or making genes available to be turned on and off in response. That's right. That's right. I mean, it just, you know, it's very, it's a game changing concept. Let me, let me throw two papers out to you and, and just get your thoughts on them. 20, December 2020 um, in, in a nature publication out of Sinclair's um, laboratory looking at a age-related optic neuropathy that they created in, in, in mice. Um, and then they reversed it using three of the four Yamanaka factors, which addressed methylation and demethylation. So they created an age associate an age-related illness. They, it was an aging neuropathic condition. And then they turned it around specifically by addressing epigenetics and specifically more specific, you know, DNA methylation and demethylation. And then and we know Yamanaka factors to back up for anybody who doesn't, they're they're a group of four transcription factors that can take a somatic cell and reverse it or any cell really and reverse it right back it's in, to a pluripotent state so and an inducible pluripotent stem cell that can then go on and be become any other cell so yamanaka factors are crazy transcription factors that will eliminate that, that will just wipe away epigenetic information and, and and i think they do this primarily via dna methylation and demethylation but of course, it's beyond that. That's just the lens that we're, that's the street lamp we can see under right now um, and take it back to the earliest li life stage. However, in Sinclair's lab, they controlled it. They didn't go back to pluripotent stem cell status. They actually resolved this eye injury, extraordinarily enough. And the, and the whole, um, you know, the optic neurons were actually younger. So that's study A in uh, December 2020. And then the, his lab just recently published another animal study where they induced aging, uh, again, just gunking up epigenetic expression, uh, and then turn in, in an animal model. So global aging, not just one condition, not just one presentation, and reversed it again using Yamanaka factors. Um, pretty, uh, just really extraordinary. I, I, I'm sure that you're aware of these two papers, but it, it certainly is starting to zero in on physiologically a very upstream driver of the aging journey. Yes, and I, I'm glad you cited that, that work. Um, uh, Dr. Sinclair was a presenter at our uh, ninth annual uh, PLMI conference in November. Yeah. And he, he did talk about uh, those, what I consider seminal studies and, and how certain regulatory networks within metabolism can be mod modulated to, um, as you say, kind of erase some of those marks that relate to those uh, expression of those phenotypes. That also relates to, you know, this whole emergent of a, of a field that you just discuss, um, which is uh, senolinics and senomorphics. And um, I think the, the Kirkland work at Mayo and his whole group, and this most recent paper that was just published in Nature Metabolism, which is just one of the most 
fascinating papers I believe that I've seen recently, and, and this is specifically uh, going everything from cell-based studies all the way up through animals showing that uh, things like ability of, of uh, rodents to hang on on, a, on a, um, a wire for a long period of time is enhanced, that their muscle freak, their muscle energy, their muscle dynamics, their endurance, their respiratory quotient, all their metabolic parameters can be reversed in aged mice um, uh, uh, through the appropriate kind of intervention using senolinics. Wow. And, and what the senolinics in this case were, because he was the, his group was the first group to talk about the use of denosibib and mm -hmm. quercetin. And when I read that first study, this was uh, now probably five years ago, uh, I thought, well, that's very interesting because they've chosen these two molecules, one which comes from natural products origin, quercetin, a polyphenol, and the other from early cancer antimitotic activities. And I wonder if you could get the same biological effects without having denosibib, looking at the mechanism of action of denosibib and something that is in the natural realm that would do the same thing, but maybe not as hard a hitting. Yeah. Well, lo and behold, that's what this most recent nature metabolism study did. They did not use any kind of chemotherapeutic. This was strictly right. using a complex mixture of natural phenolic compounds in grape uh, seed uh, extract. So it was a grape seed extract study showing all these parameters of cellular aging were reversed. They started with cells, they moved ultimately to animals. Then they asked the question, is there any molecule within that complex mixture that is doing the heavy lifting? And they eventually uh, identified one molecule, uh, a procyanated uh, C1, they call it. Uh, it's a trimer of quercetin, actually, huh. that was the what they considered the heavy lifting molecule. Well, if you look at the data carefully, which I, I did, I spent hours really going through the, the study. It has uh, tens of different figures and diagrams. It's really information rich. I think you can tease out of the out of the study that the natural mixture was fully intact of probably tens of different molecules in the grape uh, seed ex extract uh, actually had higher activity in both the senolinic and senomorphic influence with lower potential adverse effects than did the single molecule uh, procyanidin C1. So it, it begged the question: Why did they put procyanidin C1 in the title of the paper? Yes. and not put grapeseed extract. It's because it's much easier to understand in the traditional pharmacological model of one molecule against one activity than yes. it is to talk about this complex mixture in network pharmacology. Yes. So I think that we're starting to witness an incredible transition in thinking about senolinics or aging in cells using network pharmacology versus traditional one-agent pharmacology. I think that that's great. That sounds like I just I I I I feel like that I feel like that that paper came in my peripheral vision, but I certainly didn't until I didn't a, a, attach to it in the same way you did. I'm so glad that you brought it to my attention. It is it's incredibly important. I guess one of the things that I observe in in the biogerontology world, which I'm paying more attention to, um, because of our our study, and it's an exciting and very interesting and extremely important place to be. I think is you know, as, as uh, the chronic, chronic disease epidemic gallops forward. But um, there's, there is a hat worn by a lot of the scientists around this, you know, this reduction, reductionistic pharmacology lens. And um, 
And I absolutely 100% agree with you. I think maybe we will find a handful of molecules that, you know, take us a, a, a pretty cool distance or some of us, right? Because it, it, they're not going to work for everybody and there's certainly going to be untoward side, side effects. And, you know, if you're playing with the, the, the epigenome to uh, lower biological age with those aggressive molecules, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be risky and I'm, I'm not going to be first in line for some of those, um, but maybe there will be, maybe we will find some of those molecules and people will be billionaires or trillionaires and then that kind of thing. I just learned that I need to unfortunately call this quits because I've got a very important call I need to take. So oh. with, with abruptness, I'm going to have to, um, to, to big off here. Well, folks, sometimes life just gets in the way of our deepest conversations. And such was the case with my amazing chat with Dr. Bland. We will definitely circle back to this again. And of course, uh, you can find conversations with Dr. Bland on New Frontiers uh, in previous years. He's also participating in our masterclass for the book launch, so find him there. In fact, I will ask him, if you've pre-ordered the book, I'm going to ask him his own longevity pearls, as well as all of those in the masterclass, what exactly they do and their longevity, their approach to health span and vibrant longevity will be released to those uh, who pre-order the book only. So thank you again for hanging with me to the end. Know that I will continue this conversation with Dr. Blunt. And if you're listening to this after, months after the book is out, I would love to hear what you think and just your thoughts overall on this journey of epigenetics. As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. Not everyone can be a sponsor on my platform, and I so appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Biotics, TA Sciences, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic and can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com, tasciences.com, and integrativepro.com, and please tell them you learned about them on New Frontiers. If it's not too much to ask, I would appreciate a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.